BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Read the Chicago Reader to get up to speed on what's what in Chicago. Culture. Food. Arts and entertainment. Weekly concert listings. Weekly event listings. The environment. Travel. I can continue, but you get the point. And for all of you Chicago political junkies, raw weekly columns on real city politics from Maya Dukmasova and our very own Ben Jarofsky. The Chicago Reader. Free to the public in newsstands throughout the city and online at chicagoreader.com. Read it now and be a more informed Chicagoan. Welcome back to the show, everybody. It's part two of our City So Real series. I'm utterly obsessed with Steve James' picture, his film. I've said it many times. I think it's a masterpiece. And uh, don't tell Steve James I said this because his head is going to get so freaking big. As much as I like City So Real, it's not even my favorite Steve James movie. So that's how uh, gifted uh, Steve James is as a filmmaker and how lucky we are to have him here in Chicago. Please don't tell him I said any of that. It will really go to his head. Um, my guest was uh, a gentleman I promised that I would bring on. Uh, he is a, a character uh, in the movie, and, um, well, why uh, hold back anymore? Neil Salas Griffin, welcome back hey, to the man. show, young man. Thanks for having me. It's been a while. It has been a while. Uh, Neil was on my, was a guest when he first announced he was running, came on my show, my radio show, and uh I don't know if you've been back since. I used to see you walking down the stairs as I'd be walking up the stairs when for that mo- when we were doing the show out of the studio at the Sun Times before the pandemic. And your uh, your office is in that building, correct? Yeah, man, I'm always on the move. So I was right underneath you, uh, working out of a office space with a company called Basecamp. So mm-hmm. those are my folks in the Chicago tech world. But you know, like if you're a Chicagoan, there's a lot of places to go check out things to do people to see so you, you'll catch me on the move at all times even during covid all right he's always on the move and uh so he's in the movie if you haven't seen the movie uh spoiler alert uh but i think most everybody listening to this has seen the movie uh neil is sort of the um the underdog uh, in uh, that election cycle. So, Neil, why don't you one more time just explain why you decided, never having never run for office before, uh, obviously having never served in office before, you would start with such a, a tough challenge just running for mayor. Yeah, thank you, Ben. My reasonings for running for mayor are quite simple. I am not a complainer. I don't like to complain about things. So... Uh, I didn't start with wanting to run for mayor or run for office at all. I started with wanting to ask myself, what are the solutions to the population flight in Chicago with respect to our black community and our black people? Because our lowering population is exclusively related to that. So I wanted to ask those questions and do my research and analysis and assessment. And from doing all of that, what I learned was a lot of our progress is hinged on our budget and very timely topic for this conversation, given this week and what we're trying to, you know, wrangle and and assess with our current mayor. Uh, 
the mayor influences that budget and all of the activities in Chicago in a way that is disproportionate and not in a way that I agree with. So I wanted to change that and talk about that. I didn't really care if I won or lost. I cared about making sure that I threw my hat in the ring and did my part to actually be about change rather than just like on the sidelines, you know, critiquing it and not really immersing myself in it. So I, t- I tackle, I tackle problems head on and I don't really care about the odds. And so the odds were stacked against you. When you announced you were running, Rahm Emanuel was still a candidate. He hadn't dropped out yet, uh, as I remember. Uh, So you were one of the really bold, uh, the bold bunch that they announced uh, they were running uh, when Rahm was in the race. And, of course, the dynamics changed once Rahm uh, decided he wasn't going to run. And then uh, some bigger-known names jumped in the race, like uh, William Daly and Tony Preckwinkle and Susanna Mendoza, et cetera. Um, since this is your first run for any office, particularly, you probably had no experience whatsoever with the whole process of gathering signatures and presenting them to be on the ballot. Am I correct in that one, uh, Neil? You're 100% correct. And uh, wow, did I learn a ton about that. All right. Now, in terms, so let's talk about that. This this is some of the most compelling scenes in the movie, lady, ladies and gentlemen. When my uh, old friend uh, Ricky Hendon, uh, and he's a friend of mine, uh, even though we don't see eye to eye on uh, the election process, uh, he's working on behalf of Willie Wilson, and um, he goes after your signature. So, so I'll kind of lead us through the process of how this went down. Sure. So I went out there and spent months on end on the streets collecting signatures from Chicagoans in order to get on the ballot. You need 12,000 to get on the ballot that are like valid and confirmed to be valid uh, by the board of elections. So usually the second hand is you need double or triple that amount in order to have the amount that would be deemed legitimate because so many get thrown out or challenged or you put yourself at that risk. So that being said in the movie, it does a great job of documenting the submission and the challenge process once they're submitted we don't really cover the collection of the signatures in any significant way in the film. So happy to talk about that uh, as well. But essentially once I submitted my signatures, we submitted over 18,000, which typically would not be enough um, during a traditional challenge process to get on the ballot. Uh, But because we did them all authentically, we didn't outsource uh, our signature collection. We did that manually as a core campaign team for the most part. Uh, We had a a shot. We had a real shot at getting legitimate signatures through. And I actually do believe we had them. That being said, Ricky Hendon um, on behalf of Willie Wilson's campaign decided to challenge our signature process. So that put us in a deadlock for over a month where every single day, seven days a week for about 12 hours a day, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., you're in this tiny, cramped, cubicle-written Board of Elections space where you have to go line by line and defend your signatures with however many number of uh, you know, uh, judges are there to, to assess them. So there's anywhere from three to four that were assigned to us, so we had to have three to four people at all times during that time. If you don't have anyone there, you can't uh, really do anything, and I was there every day myself. <laughs> along with a bunch of my campaign team members and friends and family. So uh, I can get into the details, Ben, but that's the high level of the process. And the way it ended up was, you know, I, you know, spoiler alert, but you know, we ended up getting on the ballot and doing the unthinkable. There's a lot that went into that happening. There was a lot of friction and, you know, issues. And Ricky tried to ultimately pull out from, you know, the challenge by the end of it, because we had become friendly enough where, you know, he and Willie were willing to, 
you know, remove their challenge in order for us to be on the ballot. But the issue happened with the board of elections where they were very frustrated with the fact that they had expended so many resources to participate in and receive this challenge on behalf of their campaign only for them to pull out the last minute. So I understood both sides of the matter, but I was just trying to be a good candidate and do my job and run for office and not get so entrenched in this like process that is what I would describe as undemocratic in many respects. I'm with you 100% on that. I'm pretty much a libertarian when it comes to ballot access. Uh, the more the merrier, yeah. I say. Yeah, uh, let them in. It let them all in. And this is 12,500 quote unquote good signatures is a detriment to democracy and it dispirits people. Uh, and as part of the problem, there's so much alienation from the whole uh, electoral system here in Chicago. All right, I'll get off my soapbox and go back to the, the, the very compelling story. So Ricky Hendon is challenging candidates on behalf of Willie Wilson. I think he went after all the black men who were running. Yes. It's, it's been a while. So it's like, yeah, it was clear. No, in the film. Yes, he does. He mentioned the film. So no wonder it's in my memory. <laughs> uh, so he clearly it's a strategy. And this, by the way, uh, is a very cynical strategy, Neil, because it presumes that uh, all black men will be attracted to a black man. Uh, so if you get rid of all the other black men on the ballot, th- the chances are they're all going to vote. The black men in Chicago are going to vote for Willie Wilson. That, that's sort of the underlying notion there, which... I'm not sure I buy that. I, I know I don't buy that at all. Um, compelling distinction between in the movie between the the uh, relationship or between you and Ricky Hendon and the relationship between Jamal Green and Ricky Hendon. It was contentious to put it mildly between Ricky and Jamal Green. They exchanged the harsh words. I thought they were going to fists were going to be flying at any minute. Um, with you, it was different. Explain why it was different in your opinion between you and Ricky Hennig. Go. There's as, as the old saying goes, and my mother taught me this, even though I don't know if, if it's even technically or, you know, biologically correct. You catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. So if there was one thing that I hope most people I interacted with on the campaign trail, remember it's that I was respectful and I tried my best to be kind and understanding. And that didn't become more important uh, than when I was at the board of elections defending my own signatures. And I look across the table at the person who is challenging my signatures on behalf of Ricky Hinton and Willie Wilson and realizing that they were there because they were trying to get paid because they were doing a job. And it wasn't really about them wanting to knock me off the ballot. It wasn't about them wanting to, uh, you know, fight against democracy. It was really, they were just human beings there to do a job and to be helpful for something they thought they were, you know, supposed to do. So once I realized that I just focused on building like genuine connection and relationships with people, even if I disagree with them, even if um, we don't see eye to eye, even if I I don't think that I don't agree or condone some of the things that they've said or done, there's always room for growth and by bringing more people together, we can make more progress. And I think because I was trying to be that respectful and kind spirit to not only Ricky, but the rest of his team that he had there, uh, we ended up becoming friendly enough where, you know, we were making jokes, we were hanging out and it became less of a thing. And they, they really did not mind me being on the ballot and being a candidate uh, because they thought I was a good dude. 
I, I think that's really where it landed. Um, I don't want to speak for them uh, in that regard. I'm sure there was probably other thought and strategy involved and maybe they had determined I seemed like less of a threat than they initially thought. Um, who knows? But regardless of that, if you lead with kindness and respect, uh, you'd be amazed at what can happen uh, if you if you you know are genuine about it. Now, Neil, let me just follow up on that for a moment, because uh, by coincidence, this has been a theme of the shows that I uh, did today. We're doing this interview on Wednesday, November 25th. So just by chance, this uh, this has been on my mind. Follow me, Neil. Uh, David Dinkins. Uh, who was the former mayor of New York yeah. City, the first black man ever elected mayor of New York City, the only black man ever elected mayor of New York City, died just a couple of days ago. And the obituary was in the newspaper today. And I read it. I was really absorbed it because he was always a gentleman. And he always carried, he was before your time, Neil, so you probably don't have yeah. any hardcore memories of, but he, he carried himself with such dignity and class. And he treated people with respect in direct contrast to the man who succeeded him. Rudy Giuliani, who was always a total jerk to freaking anybody he met. And he was just like most arrogant, I'm a better than you type of guy and always had to cut people down. And David Dinkins carried himself with dignity. And New Yorkers rejected him for Rudy Giuliani. When they did, the attitude was, you can't be nice to be mayor in New York City. And man, I hated that attitude, Neil Salas Griffin, because I don't think New York City was any better under Rudy Giuliani than it was under David Dinkins. And yet there's that attitude that if you're a nice guy, if you're like Neil Salas Griffin, you can't really run a tough city. So Given your experiences uh, with Ricky Hendon and Willie Wilson and that uh, Board of Election uh, back rooms, what's your thoughts about being a nice guy and running a city? I think that's what our city needs. I think we need people who are our leaders and not just like disciplinarians or managers or marshalling people in a certain way, um, wagging their finger, trying to tell you what to do and make you feel like you're in, you know, a classroom or you're in the Dean's office. And unfortunately that's been the vibe from a lot of the mirrors that we've had in the past. And, you know, that's been the expectation from people on the outside who are looking at this and not thinking differently and not thinking outside the box for what new leadership could actually bring to the table when it comes to a different level of thinking and uh, building a strong team. Right. So when we think about Rahm Emanuel and what he was effective at and what he was less effective at, you know, he certainly put a lot of competent and interesting and, and smart people in, in positions to make progress in certain ways. Um, maybe not all, unfortunately, but even in the ways that he, that he did a good job, it was largely the failure of effectively leading and managing and inspiring people that I think impeded our progress in Chicago. So that's the conversation I wanted to have is what if, you know, the, one of the most important currencies that you have as a leader for the, your constituents and then the public is trust. And why would I like want to work with somebody or trust somebody who doesn't actually exude some sort of energy that makes me inspired to work with them or for them or, or believe in them or be led by them? So in my experience with the companies that I've run, with the teams I've been a part of, with all the current activity I do in investing in early stage startups in Chicago and beyond, you have to have leaders that can balance stern decisiveness with a warm openness to change and opportunities and ideas. It's just a sign of good leadership and Chicago needs it. We haven't had it. One day we'll get it. All right, let's talk about uh, briefly before we go back to the movie. Uh, it's because this is a natural point to talk about it. Stern decisiveness. Uh, Lori Lightfoot, the current mayor of the city of Chicago uh, has exhibited from time to time 
uh, a certain sternness. Uh, yes. And we've talked about this a lot on this show in the last week. Uh, we had Jeanette Taylor, older woman Jeanette Taylor on the show from the 20th Ward. And uh, Lori Lightfoot in a, in a meeting uh, to with the black alderman uh, told him, don't expect, and I'm just quoting her, shit from me yeah. yep. if you don't vote for my budget. And your attitude toward that, your reaction toward that, Neil. Yeah, that was an interesting choice of words. And uh, I, I, I have to say, I can't say what I would have said in that situation because I don't know her full context, right? I'm not in the position of the mayor right now where I have all this information. I'm dealing with enough things that are making me you know, frustrated. I will say that that does not uh, strike me as something that I've ever really conveyed or said uh, in my life in any context when it comes to trying to get other people to buy into what I'm trying to do. Um, but she has a very different and challenging job than anything I've ever experienced. So uh, with that in mind, my thoughts are, I, I, I hope that over time, Lori steps into her responsibility and her role to inspire and lead people in addition to manage and marshal people. And I would love to work with her in supporting those efforts. I'm sure that's something she would love to do more of. So I, I, I have to, you know, try my best to stay positive and keep my hopes up. But that is definitely a, a, a lapse in, in my view uh, with the limited context that I have and how to frame something in a way that allows people to buy into it. That all being said, Ben, she got the budget passed. Oh, yeah, she got the budget. I never thought she it was going to be doubt. Yeah, only needed twenty five votes yeah. to do it. <laughs> yep, but then, but then, what happens afterwards, right? When you say things like that to people, if you don't vote for my budget, you know, don't expect anything from me. It's that's going to be pretty tough. You know, that's a, that's a tough thing because all of these people were selected by their constituents to serve in their roles. So, their the role that our aldermen have is to get the most, um, you know, and, and get the best that they can for their constituents in in all aspects. And if you know just under half of our uh, city council did not support this budget. And apparently they're not supposed to expect anything from their mayor. That's a really difficult message to go back with your constituents and share. Uh, by the way, just how would you have voted if you were an alderman? Would you have voted for the budget? So again, the context, right? So it depends on which ward I'm the alderman for and how I engage my community. But the process that I would take, Ben, I think would challenge people's thinking about the like what's right or wrong because I will bring in my own perspective into the situation and what I think is right. Right. I do think that there are aspects of the budget that could uh, have been a lot better. It wasn't like an open and shut case, but not being in the room to have those debates and conversations, it'd be hard for me to justify it either way. Um, and I would obviously, you know, engage my constituency in a, in a significant way to make that call too. So I actually don't know. I, I wish I could answer your question more clearly, Ben, but I'll, I'll be honest with you. The process that I would apply to that would require more data and details in order to answer. All right, Neil, as I say this, I realize what I'm about to say sounds so incredibly naive. Let's do it. Uh, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> Why not? So my just general inclination with people uh, is to take a high road. So if I were, God forbid, in a position ever mayor, I would probably say to the Jeanette Taylor's world, you know, Jeanette, I know you're gonna, you may vote against me. I just want to assure you, I will always deliver for the 20th Ward. If the 20th Ward needs, it's like legitimately needs something, you're going to get it. I'm not, I never hold that against you. So you do what you got to do. I'm doing what I got to do, and I will respect you. If I, if someone were to say that, and you're in a business world, you know, it, you know how tough things can be. If someone were to say that, would the other side laugh and go, what a schmuck? What a, yeah, right, buddy. 
or would it have a positive impact? What's your thoughts? No, that, that's a very respectful way to frame it, Ben. You should run for office. <laughs> <laughs> didn't see that one coming. Did no, you? I didn't. No, that's not going to happen. That was legit. That was legit. But, you know, is that the Chicago way? Is that the Chicago style? Who cares? It should be if it isn't. And uh, I, I, I was I was fighting to create a future where we can actually be a little bit more warm and welcoming. Like, there's a reason why we have such, like, sparse voter turnout and there's a reason why we have such low engagement it's because when people look at this they see a bunch of people barking and yelling at each other being rude to each other not getting on the same page not doing a good job and at the end of the day they're just done with it yeah. you know they don't want to be bothered with this stuff and i learned this on the street because i was out there collecting signatures myself i had one two sometimes three four or five minutes to talk to a voter and convince them why they should get me on the ballot and when i had these like candid interactions with people who didn't know who i was and wanted to have nothing to do with me until i opened my mouth and had something interesting to say hey i'm neil i'm running for mayor i believe that you should get a receipt when you pay your taxes i'd love to get your support in order to get on the ballot you know that's my pitch right in mm-hmm. 15 seconds and it worked but what i learned is that People are just like kind of fed up with all the crap, all the stuff that you've been talking about for so many years. Uh, we all know it's true. And then as somebody who got into it as a rookie, wow, it was more true than I thought. And it was worse than I thought. So I got deeply concerned about the future of our city. Uh, and now I'm just grateful now that I'm in a position to help in a, in a different way on the outside. All right, we'll talk about that going to uh, what you're up to these days. Let's go back to the movie again. There's that moment where uh, Ricky announces that he's had a change of heart. It's truly one of my favorite scenes in the movie. And Ooh, <laughs> it's real. It got, I can't believe he got it on camera. Yeah, uh, well, that, that's the genius of Steve James. We'll get into that. But yeah, um, I don't know if it's genius, it's luck. But anyway, uh, and being there, showing up, that's 99% of it. But the election judge gets mad at Ricky and I'm watching this Neo and I'm, I'm like, I, it's like surreal moment. Mm -hmm. You know, they're like, well, we, we, Ricky goes, we're dropping our objection to Neo and the, and the election judge is saying, you realize you've knocked off so many of his signatures that he's no longer eligible to be mayor. You can't do that. We can't just ignore what we did. And Ricky's like, well, I want it. I want you to ignore it. And he basically forces him, God bless Ricky, to, to ignore it and to let you be on the ballot. And then they interview officials from the Board of Elections. They're mad at Ricky. Well, this he's, he's abused the system. I'm like, the system is so freaking abusing itself. That's what you're, you're mad at Ricky? It's, it's the it's system. It's messed up that, on both ends. It's messed up on both ends. So the way I would describe it, Ben, is on, on one hand, you have someone who is playing the game, right? So the process that has been handed to us, we have to accept in order to run. Um, now, there are ways to change that process and make it more accessible, which I would love to pursue and support other people's efforts around. But that being said, what they're coming from, where the Board of Elections is coming from is, hey, we have our policy. We have our like what we need to do and they're just trying their best to do it. So when Ricky, you know, decided to drop the challenge at the 11th hour on their end, they're like, well, we just put in all this work and dedicated all of these resources on behalf of our taxpayers to do our job. And you're rendering all of that work. null." now 
I, I wanted that, right? I want yes, render it null, please. Let me in, <laughs> let me in, in to, the, to the game. But yeah. I could see from both perspectives what was going on, right? And Ricky had his frustration because he was in support of us remaining on the ballot by having the challenge dropped. But at the same time, the, the, the game was already played. And, you know, they had, even though I would strongly contend that we did have the valid signatures been like, I will tell you about that process and how messed up it is. You are literally guilty until proven innocent when it comes to signature yes. verification in Chicago. And it is, it is absolutely absurd and disgusting. Yes. Um, if, if anybody believes in democracy, the fact that you live in Chicago and you're not aware of what's happening there, I strongly encourage you to become more aware and become supportive in some way, shape or form of changing it and reforming it because it is unacceptable. Um, so yeah, on both ends, there were issues at the end of the day, we made it and we made history cause I'm not sure that's ever happened before. Uh, I don't recall it ever happening. Now, uh, you had a pretty good poker face while that was going on, uh, and you were not. Ref- you're. I would never want to play cards with you, Neil. I'm known uh, for that. Yeah, it's like I can't see what's he thinking. There's like every now and then a little smile would kind of curl up on your face while Ricky Ricky was going back and forth with this election <laughs> judge, and on your behalf, after having spent a month trying to kick you off the ballot. Uh, but what was going on in your head as you were watching Ricky in that exchange? And actually, at one point, you put your hand on his hand, like, calm him down. So what was going on in your mind behind that poker face? Uh, I just wanted to make sure everybody was safe because it got very heated in that moment. And I didn't want anyone to uh, do anything that they would regret or say anything that they would regret. So I could not control what the election judge was saying in the moment. All I could control was how he handled and received it. Uh, there wasn't a position in that moment for me to negotiate or persuade. And because all of that assessment had been done, my number one job was just to make sure everyone walked out of that situation unscathed and with facts so that we could move forward and figure out what we could do. I tend to take a very objective approach to situations like that. Even if it's a complete curveball, it came out of nowhere. We were not expecting it. It took us completely by surprise. I take everything in stride because if you're going to be a, a mayor, let alone a mayoral candidate, you're going to have to have a cool head about things like that. Mm. All right, Neil, uh, you've been fortunate in many ways. You've been, they always say that Chicago is a tale of two cities. You've yeah. been in both cities. Uh, yeah, you grew up on the South side, went to Mount Carmel high school. You're teach at Northwestern now successful yep. in the tech sphere. So all sides, uh, one of the things about Steve's movie, I thought he did very effectively was show, many different sides of Chicago and the other scene that had such an impact on me, complete opposite impact. I might add is that dinner salon scene in the penthouse where all these, um, well-to-do people are sitting around opining about how great Chicago is under mayor Rahm, how much they love mayor Rahm and, uh, how the one, the banker says the worst thing that can happen is we have another Harold Washington, Harold Washington, yeah. I almost I didn't know whether to cry. I, I mean, I was I found that so upsetting, Neil, that, that he would have that adage. You just boldly, arrogantly say it. What was your reaction to that scene? Curiosity. My reaction was curiosity, Ben. And, and you know what? I, I, I love you because you have this true, raw, emotional reaction to situations like that. And I think that's why people listen and love what you have to say, because they feel it too. And I feel it too, Ben. There is a part of me that has a similar reaction to you. However, 
my curiosity is with respect to, all right, this man is clearly a successful businessman, CEO. He even said that he was friends with Ed Burke, right? So he's, he's talking about the situation from his view and his context in a way where my gratitude is the fact that he was willing to say that on camera. Okay. So my curiosity comes from, all right, well, how does one come through life in Chicago or elsewhere to believe that saying something like that would actually signal progress, right? And be a good thing because it's truly how he feels. And that's one speaking to, again, the genius of Steve and being able to capture that moment and making him open enough to share a thought like that in that moment. But two, like it's, it's, it's our opportunity to let people like that know that it's okay to share that thought, but we hope that you're also open to engaging us in a conversation about different perspectives in the chance that you may have that wrong. Right. So that's why I say curiosity, Ben, because when I was running, I interacted with a lot of people who I disagreed with. I interacted with a lot of people who, uh, you know, I, I felt very differently about the issues then uh, than how they felt. So my job is to be open and honest with them, but at the same time, welcome their perspective and challenge them when I can. And that's who that that was an example in the film of someone who I felt like I would want to I would I wish I was in that room to, to build on what he had to say there, because maybe if we unpacked it further, we'd understand where he's coming from or we'd understand how screwed up his perspective really is. Who knows? Uh, but that's, uh, you know, my feeling on the matter, because I, I tend to, you know, lead with curiosity before I judge. All right. Well, that is uh, I am now uh, anointing Neil Salz Griffin to sainthood. <laughs> Saint saying, Neil, man. man. It's, it's interesting. It's, it's, it's super interesting to see how these folks come to be who they are and to think how they think. And, uh, you know, I learned this in college at Northwestern. I had some professors that challenged my thinking in ways that really unlocked my realization that we're all like in the same boat. We're humans. We're in society and humanity. And we, we mostly want to survive and we mostly want to bring in new life. And we mostly want the world to be better. You bring that down to Chicago and there's just so much nuance and complexity there. And city. So real does an amazing job of contrasting that. And even in that scene you're talking about, there was some contrast because there were people in that room who reacted similarly to you, Ben, probably in their head. And, and afterwards, <laughs> yeah. But in the moment, no. That uh, you could hear a pin drop in that room when he said that. Yeah, yeah. If I had been there, they probably well, I probably wouldn't have been invited in you the first place. Flip the table but, over. Uh, what are you talking about, man? I lived in Chicago. The water. You put. You turn the water tap. The water came out for Harold just like it came out for Daly. It didn't come out better for Daly than it came out for Harold. Sorry about that, Neil. I could no, man. That, that's it. That's the energy. You got it. Uh, all right. Uh, by the way, any scenes in the in the movie that really jumped out at you? Like, yes. Which ones? The barber shops. The barber shops. So, barber shops in Chicago are a fascinating thing to 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 sit in and and be around. Black barber shops. You got white barbershops, you got the Bridgeport barbershops, you, you know, you have barbershops all over the city, but going in there and it, for at least in, on the South side, it's like not just getting a haircut, you know, you're there for therapy. You're there for, you know, discussing politics. You're there for, you know, getting coaching and advice. You're there to talk about what's going on in the neighborhood and the community. And, you know, there's so much progress that can be made there. 
and so many connections that can be built. Uh, it was, it was always fascinating to me. And that's why I, you know, I was involved in, in running and managing some barbershops when I was in college um, in Chicago. So uh, I love those scenes because it's it, like Steve takes us there. He takes you into what it's like to sit in a Chicago barbershop bar and hear the banter and conversations that occur. And those are conversations about what's happening with the city and how it can it be better. But those are also conversations just about, you know, casual things that like everyday Chicagoans can relate to. So my reference to the barbershops here as an answer, Ben, is is essentially a, a microcosm of a larger theme and narrative throughout the 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 five part, you know, docuseries that is City So Real, which is I feel like he is holding up a mirror to us as a city. In the same way that your one of your best friends will likely call you out on your BS and tell you what's wrong, but also acknowledge and praise you for what's right and what's good. He's calling us out and he's saying, Hey, here's your city. Here you are. Here we are, in fact. And uh, what do we think of that? Right? So there's good, bad, ugly, better, and worse. And with all those different factors and scenes that he was able to capture the contrast that exists in our city between black and white, between North and South, between rich and poor, my goodness, contrast creates meaning. Hmm. Uh, Neil, one of the um, uh, one of the points that you make uh, in the movie, and one that you have already made uh, in our conversation today, and you've made many times before, is the fact that so many black people have left Chicago over the last twenty years, and um, neighborhoods throughout the South Side and West Side uh, have bottomed out. And I have, well, I'll ask you. I won't tell you. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that is so? So I, I can tell you why on a few levels. It starts with the personal level. And I think the, the, the personal nature of this is important to, to share because I, I find that not a lot of people are alarmed by that, even if they don't like how it sounds like, oh, black people are leaving. Yeah, that's terrible. What's happening? Why? It doesn't really get visceral or real unless it's happening to you. So what I said, I think year, a few years back was, you know, tomorrow's Thanksgiving. Our dinner table, our dining table, our Thanksgiving gatherings and events over the years has become fewer and fewer people. So throughout my 33 years of being on this earth, I've seen a majority of my family leave the city of Chicago. And the majority of my family happened to be black and African-American and uh, in addition to Hispanic. And uh, um, with that, I saw firsthand that folks were leaving and I wanted to know why. So I set out on a journey to do research and do interviews. And I applied the same techniques that we do with technology companies to understand our customers at both that scale and at an early stage. And I applied that same framework and methodology to figuring out what's going on with the city of Chicago and why are we losing so many black people and why do we have a declining population? Because as a mayor, that is a key metric for success. Meaning you have a growing tax base, you have a growing population that's at least, you know, working towards its, you know, full potential and capacity as a city. I think we are probably designed for 3.5, 3.6 million, maybe 4 million people. And we're, you know, barely scraping and scratching at 2.7 million, just under that. Mm-hmm. Um, so from a data standpoint, I reached out to the experts. I reached out to people who were doing that analysis to figure it out. And every conversation I had with the people who were gathering the data 
they were struggling to interpret the data to determine both correlation and causation. So in light of all that, uh, I learned through doing a round of over 50 interviews with people who had recently moved away from Chicago, why they were leaving. And it is actually as simple and as intuitive as you might think. It's, I want my kids deserve uh, a better education. I and my children need to feel safe where we live and to be able to go outside. And I need access and opportunity to the types of jobs that would allow me to provide for my family and myself. Those are the three scenarios, school, safety, and jobs that were like completely the standouts for why folks were leaving. And mind you, it went beyond just black people. These were the reasons that most people who were leaving Chicago, regardless of their demographic status or their socioeconomic background, were leaving for. Folks go out to the suburbs for better education, whether you're rich or you're poor. Folks go out to the suburbs for, you know, better uh, safety, whether you're rich or you're poor. Um, Depending on where you're at in the city and what you're afraid of and what your life has been like, there are many reasons for why you might consider leaving. And the one surprise to me was the fact that taxes like in and of themselves wasn't the trigger moment. It happens to be a component to anyone's rationale and and decision-making when it comes to how much money they can have in one place versus another, but it was never the screaming reason. And when I heard people say that that was the reason I always got curious, but also I wanted to challenge them because I don't know if, Many people did the same research that I did to actually figure out what people who actually recently left were saying and what their stories were. Mm-hmm. So I did that work and I had that confidence because of it. You know, I uh, listening to you uh, uh, give that anecdote there. I had I went back in time to about 1999. And I was doing a story. So this is just a prototype. This is not like deep abiding research uh, that across the board, but this is just one uh, anecdote. And I was doing a story about a changing neighborhood on the north side around Cabrini Green, which had been traditionally black for as long as I can remember. And white people were starting to move in the area. And I remember interviewing uh, one of the uh, new residents, a white guy, about mid-30s at the time. And he said that he had confidence in the future of Chicago because he thought Mayor Richard Daley like understood his problems. Now, I got to tell you, Neil, I was hard on Daley every year. I, I didn't feel Daley in any way, okay? Right. So, but I'm listening. I'm like you. I'm doing my Neil thing. I'm listening to people, okay? <laughs> and um, I'm like, okay, Daley has connected to, with this guy. I go so far as to say the reverse is true for so many uh, black people who left Chicago. The Daley's and the Rams of this city were not speaking to them in a way that reassured them that they were looking out for them and therefore Chicago was a place they would want to remain. Your thoughts? Yes. Yes. I mean, the city, this isn't for me. They're not, this isn't, the city isn't designed nor acting on my behalf. Therefore, why should I stay? What allegiance do I have here? Um, that happens a lot and it's very sad because, that's that goes back to our leadership conversation, Ben, you know, people having this sense that, you know, they're in a place that they want to take care of. Right. So when you look at the communities that are struggling, when you look at how, you know, run down or dirty or just broken into and messed up that those places might be like the, where you're talking about, are you talking about over there by the Montgomery Ward building Kingsbury, like over there by Cabrini or 
I'm trying to think of. I, I was actually a little. I know exactly. I know that area so well. It was uh, about a six block. It's just about four blocks north of that. Yeah, like same yeah, general yeah, I know area. Exactly what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, I, I'm. Yeah, all over that. So, g- given that area and the transition that I that I've seen, so many of those people just got you know essentially forced out or shipped out to the burbs, and where the situation wasn't any better. So they're not worried about their allegiance to the city. They're not thinking about Mayor Daly or Mayor Emanuel or Mayor Lightfoot. They're just trying to put food on the table. They're trying not to get in harm's way. They're trying to raise their children. They're trying to find good work if they if the work they have already isn't good enough. And uh, they're really just trying to survive, man. So it's less about who the mayor is at that point. It's more about, all right, where do I need to go to get what I need? And if that is out of here, then I'm going to do it. So some people have the emotional connection to our, our, our leaders in a way that would drive those decisions. But by far, most people aren't even thinking about what the mayor's doing or who the mayor is. And they're thinking mostly about themselves and what progress they need to make and what's going to afford that progress, whether it's here or somewhere else. Mm-hmm. You know, what's the reaction you've received uh, from the movie? Uh, have you like when do you, do you get texts from people like, oh, my God, I just saw you in this movie or, you know, emails or what have you, phone calls, whatever. What's what's been the response? I had a friend of mine who was in a bar in Oklahoma and I guess Nat Geo was on and he was like, dude, like I see your face and I'm sitting at this bar and you're on television. Like what's going on? And, uh, I, I've heard from a lot of people been, and I mean, to be honest, it has been very difficult to even keep up and stay in touch with everybody because there's a lot going on and there's still a lot of people to help. And I think the fifth episode of city. So real covers a little bit of what a lot of people are trying to do in the communities to, you know, keep things intact while so many things are falling apart, it seems. So yeah, I've heard from a lot of folks. There's been a lot of love, a lot of support, a lot of encouragement. And I have to pinch myself in thinking about the fact that, you know, we ran for mayor. We didn't get the outcome that we were hoping for, but we did make an impact and a difference. And uh, even more so now that we got, you know, featured in City So Real in a, in, a, in a way that, you know, speaks to some of the changes required in Chicago. So, man, I, I am just all smiles and gratitude in the face of a pandemic, in the face of, you know, racial injustice and in the face of all the other, you know, civil rights hardships that we are still fighting through. Uh, but yeah, a lot of folks are sending a lot of love, so they know they know it's real, and they know I'm a Chicagoan through and through. Well, uh, um, I urge everyone. Steve James gets irritated when I say this, so I'll, I'll say it some more to irritate him a little bit. Um, <laughs> what the heck? I said all those nice things about him. My humble opinion: the epilogue is. I mean, the whole movie is great, but the epilogue, the fifth the fifth segment, which talks about the summer, is so freaking moving and brilliant. Uh, I've seen it three times, Neil. <laughs> yeah. And the, the scene with you return. Oh my God. I just tearing up thinking about it. It's so moving. Like you haven't seen relatives in so long yeah. because of this freaking pandemic. Everybody is, you know, in their own little house afraid and, and just, just describe to people, uh, what happens with in that scene with you uh, sure. in the fifth episode? Go ahead. Definitely. Yeah. So uh, I, you know, have family on both sides that are, uh, you know, both my mother and my father grew up here in Englewood, Roseland, South Shore, Hyde Park uh, and elsewhere. And um, I had some family on the West side, um, Tia, who, you know, from, I have family from Colombia and Honduras 
and uh, they, you know, they're struggling. And in that scene, I'm, I'm, you know, getting taking groceries around. I'm trying to pick up things and, you know, deliver things to family members and relatives because they shouldn't go out. They can't go out. They don't have a car. They shouldn't be around catching the virus. They're, you know, in a position health wise where they're at major risk. And uh, I decided to go out with my mother and, and see our family for the first time and deliver, you know, goods. And it was really hard to fight back you know, the emotions and the tears and to stay stoic and objective and do what needs to be done and not um, fully engage because you want to, you know, sit down, you want to sit back down on her couch. You want to talk to her about how she's feeling and, you know, listen to her and hug her and embrace her and just be there for every loved one that, you know, Uh, but you can't, right. You can't even get close. And uh, to, to hear directly then right after that scene that, you know, I had lost a family member to COVID you know, man, it just got to the point where you just kind of like, you almost like lose all emotion and like, there's just this dead air Mm -hmm. and you're just like, what can I do? (laughs) What can I do? And, uh, then I snap out of it and I get back to it. I get back in my car and I go deliver the rest of the groceries. So that's what happens in the scene, but what's going on in my head that doesn't, you know, really get captured, uh, because it's, it's a film and not, you know, into my brain (laughs) is, my goodness, do we have so much more work to do? Yeah. Right. Like all this did was accelerate uh, the 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 injustices and the failures of our systems and societies. And I don't know, man. I I I ended up with a lot of fuel and energy to fight for what's right after that. But in the moment, I was definitely holding back and fighting back many of my own emotions in order to be strong for my mother and my tia. Uh, that could be that is so uh, obvious from the scene itself. Uh, Neil, we'll close by uh, asking what the future brings for you. Uh, you think you ever may run for office again, or was this enough to you to say no more? Uh, I, I saw that, and I don't want to do it again. So, what's your uh, thoughts on that? Well, I'm not jaded by the process. I'm encouraged and inspired by it. I would never rule out, you know, being in a position to serve though it has not crossed my mind. It's not something I think about. It's not something I plan to do. Uh, Who knows what the future holds. What I'm currently doing is I'm investing in early stage Chicago technology companies. And I want these companies to be inclusive. I want them to be diverse. I want them to be solving problems for their community and not just for themselves. I want all the profits that they generate to not only be redistributed into their company to make it better, but also to go out and support the communities that gave birth to all of these people who get to be a part of these organizations. Mm -hmm. So I have one of the best jobs on planet earth, I think. And in my role, uh, my new degree of support is to help all those folks out there who have thought about starting a business and who want support, encouragement, or finances in order to, you know, attempt doing so. So I, I couldn't be in a better position. I could not have asked for a better opportunity to support what I think most Chicagoans want, which is meaningful work and, uh, equal pay, fair pay and more than fair pay. And, uh, you know, just the opportunity to live a good life. So the fact that I can afford that to, you know, people by investing over a million dollars a year, sometimes more than that is incredible. So all the gratitude from my end. Neil, if anybody wants to reach out, how do they get in touch? Neil at techstars.com. Uh, you can Google me. I'm also at Neil S-A-L-E-S at N-E-A-L S-A-L-E-S on Twitter. Neil Salas on Twitter. All right. Very good. By the way, I hope your friend at that bar in Oklahoma had a mask on. Uh, we're yeah, in the middle of it. <laughs> I sure hope so, especially in Oklahoma. Like, it, it, 
it, it's it's uh it's pretty dense over there right now, and uh, my heart goes out to all the people out there. Neil, uh, happy Thanksgiving to you and your family, that great family of yours, and uh, let's have you on the show more often. Uh, oh, for sure, man. Yeah, you got me on the text. Let's get it. Uh, all right, very good. That's the Thanks, great man. Neil Salas Griffin. Happy Thanksgiving to you, and happy Thanksgiving to your family. Take care, everybody.